The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Eid Mubarak to all our Muslim loved ones and neighbors, and happy Earth Day to all of us who reside on this beautiful planet, and good morning. Welcome to those here in this space and joining us on live stream. I'm Laura Shinnam, Minister of Congregational Life, and I'm joined on the chancel by Vanessa Rush Southern, our senior minister, and Dennis Adams, our worship associate. Thanks to our musicians and song leaders today, Mark Sumner, our music director, Jennifer Perringer, our guest musician, and our song leader, Ben Rudiak-Gold. And to our tech team, led by Jonathan Silk, our communications director, including Asani Sewell, who is monitoring our chat this morning on live stream and available to help if you have any questions. We hope all of you here or on live stream have an order of service so you can follow along, on our worship to, along in our worship today. If this is your first time watching, let me welcome you in person or on live stream. If you want to get our weekly newsletter, The Flame, or get emailed a reminder about Sunday's live stream link, you can fill out one of our connections forms. They're on the welcome table outside, in the, sanctu outside the sanctuary or available through a link in the order of service or video description of today's service. I have some brief announcements I'd like to point out this morning. Please be sure to join us for a free luncheon after the service today to honor our Reiner Award winner. All are welcome. Anyone who wants to join the minister's book poetry group this week, we are sharing favorite modern poems because April is poetry month. So register so you get the Zoom link. I'd like to invite Nancy Noah Bear up for an announcement. Good morning, everyone. It's time to just have some fun together. We need fun. I mean, how have the last three years been? Time for fun. So our small group ministry is uh, doing a fun fundraiser for Hamilton uh, Center, uh, which is uh, their goal is to end family homelessness in the Bay Area, or at the very least mitigate it. And so uh, if you can't come on Friday, we feel free to make a donation. Um, anyhow, join us for game night this Friday evening. We're going to have games for all ages, intergenerational games, party games, strategy games, whatever you like. Your sliding scale donation will support a very good cause. And we're going to be providing snacks, pizza, and soft drinks and beer and wine will be available for an extra donation. And your RSVP is very important so we can buy the right amount of refreshments and also uh, meet your dietary needs on the pizza. Um, so please sign up in the gallery after the service or online via the links in the order of service or the flame. So please join us for some fun on Friday. All right, thank you. All right, you ready? Give me an R. R. Give me an E. e. Give me a T. T. Give me an R. R. Give me an E. e. Give me an A. a. Give me a T. T. What's that spell? Retreat. Retreat. <laughs> or fun. All of the above. Our all church retreat is uh, open for registration right now. Please make sure you register and come. We have a table in the gallery for more information. 
Deadline for scholarships is this next Sunday, April 30th, so if you want to come and want assistance, feel free to fill out that form and we will get back to you the following Sunday. Registration deadline is May 15th, so be aware of that. We hope you'll join us and have a lot of fun. And finally, be sure to be aware of the upcoming budget review dates that are in your order of service, so that way you can be informed about our budget process and what's happening in our budget and be able to vote on it as well, and the annual meeting coming up in June. And get your pledge in. And get your pledge in. Yes, please get your pledge in. This concludes our announcements. Now it's time for our unison chalice lighting, the words to which are in your order of service. And as you take a moment to find them, remember that these are the promises that we make to ourselves and to each other as a community. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. And now we'll be singing the hymn number one, two, three. One, two, three. Twice. We'll sing it through twice.
I'd like to invite Dolores Perez-Hilburn and the committee of the Reiner Award up for an announcement. Thank you, and good morning, everybody. I am Dolores Perez Heilbrunn, Chair of the Reiner Award Committee. This award honors members of our congregation whose lives exemplify Unitarian Universalist values in the world outside the walls of this community. It was named for a past member of our congregation, Reverend Conard Reiner, a Universalist minister who left parish work to work on social justice activities. He challenged existing attitudes about people with mental illness, helping to create the first halfway houses for those newly released from mental hospitals and prisons. Conard House was named in his honor and continues to serve marginalized people in San Francisco to this very day. Pictures of past Reiner awardees are displayed on the south wall out in the gallery. The criteria for this award include significant accomplishment on social justice issues, organizing and leadership skills, the empowerment of others, and challenging the status quo in keeping with our tradition of deeds, not creeds. Today, it is our pleasure to confer the 2023 Reiner Award on Lori Lai. I'm sorry. <laughs> Lori, will you, will you please come forward? Lori Lai has had a most unusual and auspicious life. To begin with, her birth date. She does not know who, who her birth parents were, and she, but she does know that the police found her abandoned on a street in Hong Kong where the authorities determined her to be about six weeks old. They took her to an orphanage near the border between China and the British colony of Hong Kong. Fortunately, as a toddler, she was adopted by a Chinese-American couple who lived in Hawaii. She appreciates that she was raised in her birth culture of loving parents. Her working-class family gave her, their children the best they, life that they could. They taught her to be self-reliant and to be generous to those in need. She later worked part-time jobs, including picking vegetables at a truck farm <clears throat> to put herself through college and chose to study medical technology rather than engineering, as most engineering jobs in Hawaii at that time were defense-related. Lori went through the process of coming out to friends and knew that fulfilling her parents' hope that she would become a man's wife was not to be. She moved to San Francisco to begin a career in the biotech industry and became active in the Asian lesbian community. Lori launched the pioneering Asian lesbian newsletter, Phoenix Rising, in 1985, 
providing affirmation for the lesbian community for which she received an award in 2018. Here in San Francisco, she also met the love of her life of more than 30 years, Shuli Ong. Lori and Shuli moved to Hong Kong in 1994 for Lori's work and soon learned that lesbian girls were jumping out of high-rise buildings after becoming aware of their sexual orientation. She organized a group called Queer Sisters to help girls and women understand their LGBTQ identities. Queer Sisters was one of the first feminist queer organizations in Asia, and the Hong Kong government awarded Lori a grant supporting these efforts. Returning to the United States, she received an MBA in finance and entrepreneurship and a PhD in health sciences. Although she has focused on her family and career since the year 2000, she continues to participate in local groups, including the Asian Pacific Islander queer women transgender community. She also works to educate the public on the rights of non-binary people. Lori has repeatedly demonstrated leadership qualities in the country, in this country, and abroad. Two years ago, here at UUSF, she took the initiative to begin the Women's Rights Group. After the Texas legislature passed trigger laws banning abortions in that state, and then followed by the Supreme Court decision, uh, the Dobbs decision on abortion last year. Lori has stated, somehow I was put on earth for a purpose. I am grateful for all those who have helped me along my journey and am motivated to serve others in need to pay it forward. It's with an honor I give you this beautiful, custom-made, handmade chalice to represent the great appreciation that we have for you and the life work that you've done has been described by Dolores. This chalice is a symbol of hope. It a, shows a quest for peace, the warmth of our community, and the light for freedom and all of those things, we wish you the best of your future life and your future work. Thank you very much. Um, I want to thank the uh, Reiner Award Committee and the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco for this humanitarian award. I also want to thank Shu uh, Li, my wife, who was in Hong Kong with me in the 1990s for her support. I am grateful for my co-founders of Queer Sisters, Marianne, Anson, and Lung, and last but not least, the city support of the Hong Kong Women Christian Council and the pre-1997 Hong Kong government for their generous grant that enabled the Queer Women's Hotline.
Channeling my Chinese cultural background that includes the yin-yang concept, the interconnected cosmic duality, I feel intensely proud and yet equally humble in this moment. Suicide prevention for queer females in Hong Kong meant everything to me, yet I strive to balance this with the understanding that this was not about me. Even though I was born in Hong Kong and I had struggled with depression and suicidal thoughts as I was coming out to myself in Hawaii as a teenager in the 1970s, I was in a different place in 1995. I was a highly educated expat in Hong Kong with a long-term partner, living a relatively comfortable life with wide community support of queer women friends. Our work was really about centering the whole personhood of marginalized teenage girls that left us too soon. They and so many others were isolated and in a pre-internet era had little or no access to learning about non-mainstream sexual orientations. My approach to centering the marginalized was that being a good leader meant being an even better follower. I encouraged my local friends who belonged to this marginalized group to take on leadership roles in Queer Sisters while carving out my role as an ally, advisor, worker bee, and jail of all trades. Using my early model Mac desktop, we developed a survey and analyzed the results. We were determined to define the problem by following the data before developing solutions. I am honored to share this story of how a few courageous women used a scientific method of collecting survey data on their own marginalized population to drive the Hong Kong government to recognize queer women for the first time by granting public funds for suicide prevention. I feel gratitude at that in this process, queer women built a stronger community base, became a force for social justice, and achieved more visibility within the feminist and women's organizations in Hong Kong. All this despite regular police raids on LGBTQ bars, anti-sodomy laws, little or no legal protections against housing, education, employment, and same-sex partner discrimination in Hong Kong in the 1990s. As I look back to my time in Hong Kong nearly 30 years ago, it is impressive and disappointing that so much has changed and not changed. The same can be said about the US. I can see that after some advances in LGBTQ uh, plus uh, rights, queer people are now being systematically erased by book bans, drag show prohibitions, and restrictions on education. So my friends, humanitarian work to lift up social justice goes on. I want to express my appreciation for those of you who have found an issue that means everything to you and have also made a conscious effort to center the people who are disproportionately impacted by that issue. And, in invite, and I invite the rest of you to do the same. Thank you again for this recognition.
We will now take a moment to greet one another, and you can greet Lori. And if you don't get a chance here, then please join us for the luncheon. And uh, let's, let's say hello to one another, and we'll sing our way back into community in a moment. Oh my goodness, does this group need a fun day, a retreat? Really, we should just cancel service, sing a couple songs, and hang out. I know that's what you're thinking. I'm thinking it too. But I wrote a sermon, so you're going to have to hear it. Now it's time for our Unison Covenant. I misspoke earlier. This is the part where we're making promises to ourselves and each other as a community. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, 
and to help one another. I remember as children, my parents would send my three siblings and I to a variety of different places of worship, Catholic one Sunday, Baptist the next. Sometimes we kind of understood, but other times not so much, Methodist, Episcopalian, others. But the two that really stuck with me were Unitarians and Quaker. Unitarians seemed so free and open-minded, and Quakers were so strongly silent. Both were very anti-war. Most of this time exploring and researching different perspectives of faiths and religions was done all on our own. Years later, we would become aware that our parents had accompanied, not accompanied us because Sunday mornings was their special time alone. Later, junior high for me, we all as a family started attending a socially relevant American Baptist church in State College, Pennsylvania wherein the minister, Robert B. Wallace, was nothing short of miraculous. He was adamantly, vocally against the Vietnam War and sponsored peace marches with our church youth group, always involved in the protests. There, amidst the turmoil and chaos of the psychedelic 60s in a major college town where my father taught botany at Penn State, Bob Wallace became a calm, assuring voice and presence in our lives. I always recall the mantra he often shared, life is a gift. He also got into trouble with authorities for allegedly recommending channels for some parishioners to seek a safe abortion. During that debacle, the police illegally confiscated his confidential church records. That caused them to have to drop all charges. Some of us in the youth group were worried that while the police had these records, they might have gleaned our identities, paranoid, they may have evidence now of our various proclivities for drugs, sex, and rock and roll. We were at once reminded of a youth retreat where most of us rebelliously had taken some LSD and gotten into some trouble. Even our female chaperone, the minister's wife, ended up dosed due to some unscrupulous students from our rival school giving her a laced drink. This was forbidden amongst our hippie friends as it was both dangerous and downright mean. Through many meetings, one-on-one -on -one, and with our parents, this minister deflected our fears and showed up in our senses, shored up our senses of selves. I really admired his calm demeanor and joys in life. I would wind up teaching both of his boys in Sunday school. 
my best friend and I would paint a 24-foot-long banner saying, life is a gift, and took and hung it across the choir loft. Years later, in the early 80s, I would reunite with the Wallace family out west here in Redlands, California. I would live with them in the church rectory home, First Baptist of Redlands, got a job with the church as a janitor and maintenance worker. I helped raise their four kids for a few years while studying theater arts at the University of Redlands. All these experiences have helped shape my eclectic understanding of religion and faithfulness. I believe in gods, plural, not a single god, but in all people's faiths and religions, unless they veer into fear and violence. All beliefs should be worthy of respect and consideration. That's why I love you so much. Christian, Jew, Muslim, atheist, yes, even one's decision to not believe in God is sacrosanct here. I keep asking myself, just who is this God I believe in? And there is no easy answer, though hope being a thing with feathers comes to mind. I hope there is a God force in this world that's all about lightness of being. I know it's simplistic, but I think God is mostly happy and light in spite of all the world's ills. When I think of God, I think of the good that's in all of us children laughing with joy, the helpers, the lovers, the mystery of it all. But it's not a closed ring of thought. It grows and hopefully continues to grow.
You may often notice that when Unitarian Universalists lead prayer, we try to lead with an expansive invitation to what we are communing with in that moment. So please join me in the spirit of expansive communion together. God, we know by many names and what is beyond naming. Ground of our being, force of love and light. Winds of heaven that dance between us, as Khalil Gibran once wrote. In this season for Muslims of just ending the fasts of Ramadan, with the celebrations of Eid in this weekend of Earth Day, and the ways it recalls us to the sacrality and the wisdom of the natural world, which so many traditions and people believe is itself animated by spirit, Gaia, true source of life and sustainer, the one that welcomes us back after death into the endless cycle of gorgeous rebirth. We sit this morning with a full and expansive presence of how we name what is beyond full knowing and how we find a way to do that across our differences of experience and understanding Theist, deist, atheist, agnostic, humanist, pagan, animist, and so many other ways humankind has grappled toward and with life and what foundation we stand on and are animated by and what calls and commands us to larger life. With all our differences, we sit a testament in these pews joining us from our homes to the unity that is beyond labels. To people bound in community, in shared discernment, in a desire to serve, to wonder, to sing, to demand justice, to feed the hungry, to celebrate, and to mourn, and so much more. We gather in humility and respect for one another's sacred understandings and wonderings. This morning we are asked by Selena Lane, one of the faithful fools, to pray for her family and hold in our hearts her cousin, Timothy Richards, who was shot on Wednesday in Oakland. We hold all who in the last two weeks have been shot in a senseless and heartbreaking loss of life. We hold Ralph Jarl and his family in our thoughts and prayers. We hold 
Kayleen Gillis and her family in our thoughts and prayers. We hold this nation in our thoughts and prayers that our love of one another might overwhelm our love of guns and a perverted sense of freedom. And we make room this morning for other prayers, yours, of gratitude, of yearning, of lament, For all the prayers held in the hearts of those who lit or will light candles this morning, may all these prayers be held in our collective embrace, blessed and lifted up in this hour, and may we find healing and hope, peace and the strength to take the next step in front of us. And may we know we are not alone in all we struggle to hold and to serve in our brief and precious lives. For all this we pray. Amen. And now our offering, which is for the works and continued ministries of this community, will be both given and gratefully received. Thank you. 
When I first started ministry, there were people in our congregations, maybe some of you remember this time, there were people in our congregations who would count the number of times the minister said the word God in service, and it wasn't a good thing if you said it more than once. There was, to put it simply, an allergy to using religious language, so sermons were called talks and hymns were all called songs. And as someone who had been raised largely outside of formal religious settings until the age of 16, it often felt like a strange kind of fundamentalism of its own, but also lacking a certain imagination and generosity of spirit about what we were trying to do together in religious community. And I also understood where it came from, more so as I had conversations with people. There was, and still is, a lot of pain around the idea of God and how religions conduct themselves, not just in this country, but around the world. God continues to be used to justify all kinds of positions and actions. God apparently sometimes decides decides which team wins in an important game, which people are deserving of love, and which can be bullied and left legally unprotected. Historically, notions of God have put people up on crosses and justified burning them at the stake and their shunning from community except that all of that really isn't God's doing, right? Ludwig Feuerbach, the 19th century German anthropologist and philosopher in his book, The Essence of Christianity, a book that would go on to influence thinkers from Charles Darwin to Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Sigmund Freud, Feuerbach famously says that God is essentially a human creation. He doesn't get burned at the stake for it, miraculously. And as such, God bears all the projections, the hopes, but also the prejudices and the failings of its creator. To my hearing, that's why and how God has been used, and still is, by some to say that gay teens are going to hell, and so results in much of the pull to suicide and self-hatred, that unbaptized babies are going there too, and to justify why women can't be ordained to name only some of the terrorism and the diminishment done in the name of God still. So to some degree, the problem with God is humankind. <laughs> I think the problem with God is also that we treat God like a noun, a proper noun, but really God is a metaphor. God is a word that points to something beyond what we can see and touch and hold together, something that cannot be tested in laboratories or cataloged or measured in double-blind studies. Forrest Church, the Unitarian Universalist minister who served in New York in the congregation I came to call my own, used to say, God 
is not God's name, but our name for that which is greater than all of us and yet present within each. Again, that call to make the metaphor more expansive and invite us all to consider it again. And church would tell stories about being on an airplane or at a party, and when the person he was talking to found out he was a minister, them telling him, without him asking, of course, that they didn't believe in God, like a confession or a defiant declaration. <laughs> Forrest would say what Richard Davis in this congregation told me is an, also an old rabbinic saying. He would say, tell me about the God you don't believe in. I'm sure I don't believe in him either. <laughs> God as a bearded guy in heaven, some man controlling every human action and handing down wrath, God who is jealous and narrow-minded. That's not God, that's just our unenlightened projections of the worst of our unenlightened humanity, right? But I think it's powerful and worth engaging in conversations about God, and I'm not willing to surrender it just because it's complicated and hard to be in this conversation as religious progressives. Which is to say that, yes, there has to be a lot of care and humility when we talk about God. The level of uncertainty, of unverifiability, means that we tread carefully in our assertions. But it doesn't mean we can't talk about God at all, or that it has no meaning. After all, I submit to you, we talk about love and what it means, and what it calls out of us, and how it changes us, this thing we feel and know that's so central to our lives, but we can't pass it through lab equipment. And we talk about loyalty, and we talk about beauty, we talk about so many things that we feel and feel are important to us, that we find ways to be in conversations about. The key is to bring a sense of underlying humility about what we know and leave room for the mystery and the fallibility of our projections in our conversations. And this is especially true in conversations about God. I do think there are a few things we can claim, at least I'd like to think so. For instance, the longer I live, any version of God that shuts people out of a circle of divine participation is not in keeping with what I'm trying to point to or describe when I say God. It also doesn't comply with any of the religious or spiritual experiences I've had that I'm also trying to name when I use that word. And of course, it can do damage, that vision of God. We had an ouch a few weeks back that reminded me of this in congregation. For those of you who don't know, who are new to the community, uh, we've recently adopted this ability. There are three words, but ouch is one that we say when something happens that feels hurtful. And it invites us into conversation and reconciliation and also shared learning back to the congregation. And it allows conversations to happen that need to happen. So it's been a really great tool. Well, we had an ouch. Some of you may remember in March that we had a guest minister who told a story that he had written 
about the creator and the animals that this creator had created. It was, it was actually a lovely story. The preacher let me read it in advance before he shared it, and I totally missed something that many of you did not. It turns out, if you were paying attention, the creator figure in the story and all of the animals, to the extent their sex was named, were all male. <laughs> Males are wonderful, but there is a point to this. Some of my best friends and spouses are male. But Sue Anthony, who gave me permission to share her story, told me later about how when she came to this church for the first time, the hymns were handed out in separate copies, and most of them had words that were, this was before the gray hymnal and the teal hymnal, most of them had words that were whited out and other words written in over those whited out words. How many people remember that era? <laughs> And it turned out that there was this group of people in the congregation, I think mostly women, who as part of their ministry to this congregation would go through and make the hymns more inclusive. Many congregations were doing that at the time, swapping out pronouns, but also putting in other metaphors to turn Father God into Beloved or Mother God, at, at least so that there was some parody back and forth in a hymn. Our closing hymn, you'll see, does this in a single hymn beautifully. And Sue, who had grown up in a church where the message was that women could never be the divine heroes or sheroes of a story or be holy, fell in love with this church in part because of that. So when she heard the story, the Sunday in March, of the male creator and all his male creations, an old hurt and a living demand of her faith welled up. She loved Reverend Jamie's sermon, but she went up afterwards and shared her life experience and what she noticed about the story. Reverend Jamie got it immediately and apologized. I'm sure the story is going to get an edit. And even in this sermon, I'll admit, I found myself writing God as he, all only as he at one point, because in part, old habits die hard, all kinds of them, including theological habits of when God is made in the image of some humans but not all. And part of changing all of this is remembering the cost of these habits, the ways in which when we talk about God, for me, I think for most of us, it has to be something that everybody can see themselves as part of, that's also part of them. What else? I reread some of James Cone's modern theological classic, God of the Oppressed, this week. Written in 1975, Cone takes this same venture on about challenging the notion of God as it's handed down, but in a larger frame that I think you'll enjoy if you don't already know it. Cone, who is a Christian, looks at how God shows up in scripture, drawing from a framework of understanding of Jesus as a figure in relationship to the culture around him that H. Richard Niebuhr offers, a Christ who, with God, stay with me, is working through history 
to transform the culture around them. And humankind is being invited into that so that the transformation will take hold. In this framework, Cohn sees the story of Moses and the story of Jesus as evidence that what is essential to God's presence in the world and therefore to God, God's essence is the desire to liberate the oppressed. Anything that enslaves the human body, heart, or mind is something God will work to defeat, Cohn says. And we then are called to be co-conspirators with this force. Cohn takes his thinking a step further. He says, if God stands in each era with the oppressed, then in the United States, God is existentially black. And later, womanist theologians would take Cohn's work a step further and say, well, then God is existentially in America, female in black. And I imagine that there are theologians right now saying that God is existentially trans and black. Here, I think, is where theology, and maybe I'm just a geek, gets powerful as a source or truth and a tool for our religious lives, to animate our religious lives with symbols and clarity, with challenge and solace. Have any of you noticed, by the way, the miracle that I was noticing this morning and being reminded of, that our stained glass windows, which were built in 1850s, have no image of a god. That is brilliant, right? Think about the brilliance and forethought of not putting an image of what you think God looks like in the windows like so many churches have. There's natural imagery, but it leaves the space free for this reimagining that we're constantly doing. It allows us to continue this work of animating our theology to wonder, as we might, if we take Cone's work further, what we wake to when we walk through the world that might be the way the God force identifies in our era, in our moment, in our city. Is the God force existentially the unhoused, drug-addicted person struggling with mental illness? How does imagining God in these ways change how we walk through the world and how we see it and see one another? Right now, the power of seeing God as earth, as every river and plant and landscape is something that communities have done, have done through time, are still doing through time, traditions are still alive to, even Christian mystics sometimes came to. How does this change if we live into it the way that we see theologically our world and step into relationship to it? And why should our sense of the divine be anything less than life-giving and the most life-demanding and connecting and salvific force we can imagine? If there is a God force we align our life force with, it should be nothing less than the best we can imagine and have sensed. 
I would be remiss if I didn't share with you the strand of theology which for me is most alive, that connects and resonates with my own experience and experiences. It's called process theology. Process theologians are ones who talk about God as a force that is more than us, but in us, in the way that Forest Church named it, but also something that is in process. God as growing and evolving and learning, but here's the good part, the God who does that through us. So that as we evolve, each and all of us, greater wisdom or a deeper sense of love or justice or expand our compassion, God does also. All of us fed by and feeding this incredible flow of power and insight, this life force that is fused and infused through us to evolve faster than it could have without us. I don't know if it's true that this is the case, but I love it. And something about it feels right to me. And it calls me, at least, to be in the work of reflecting on life and serving and testing my values out in the world, to be in relationship, to be seeking to be courageous, in a deep sense that I am not alone in it and it serves a larger purpose than just my doing it in the world, which I love. Not a notion of some God watching over me, but as a God who with me wants us to fail fast so we can evolve and heal the world as soon as possible. And it also makes way for that same God force seeking to learn, seeking to evolve, running through the black trans woman and the straight, able-bodied male and the Chinese grandfather in the walker and the unhoused neighbor who meets him on the street. And if we could see that we're all part of this God, mystery and love and seeking to evolve separately and together as fast as we can, salvation at stake, then I think there'd be no problem with God. I think. And we'd see that we're connected that we need to be connected in this conversation about what matters. That we're on the same God team. God, if God is a problem, is a problem because and when God is a non-reflective human creation. God is inherently a struggle because God is a metaphor a description of something that points beyond what we know to something that we ultimately only have glimpses of, moments of connection to. Our guide then for how to live in a world where this is true seems like it should be about how to be in conversation about what we know and feel about this force we try to name and serve. 
For me, that's where, and I'll close with this, the Buddhist parable of the people who are blind and the elephant is another great metaphor for God and our effort to understand God. In the story, each person, and you may know it, lays their hands on the beast and understandably generalizes from their own handful. One has the tail, one has the ear, one reaches their hands around a leg, and each one thinks that they therefore understand this thing that they hold on to. So one thinks that this creature is a rope and another that it's like parchment and the third that it's like a tree trunk. But the truth of the story and the parable is that they only have a chance to understand what they're in the presence of if they begin to talk, move their hands along, share their piece of the wild strangeness of this elephant. And maybe no one can ever fully imagine what an elephant is if they don't have eyes to see it. It is a pretty magnificent and wild beast. But our only chance of understanding it is to carve out space to talk about what we know or feel from the place in which we touch it feels to me true, deeply true about God and the invitation to be in the conversation. And for us as Unitarian Universalists, the God we name will always have to be the one we talk about with respect for one another's experience, humility about what we know, but that doesn't keep us from stepping into the mystery toward understanding and spiritual growth and hopefully mutual evolution and the call to greater love and justice making. My sense is the essence of what any God is about is somewhere in that mix. And that God, whoever God is, would be happy being named anything if we live that way in her his, their name. So, so much for the problems with God, the promise of being in conversation leads us places that I think are deeply divine. In that spirit, let's rise, let's sing together Hymn number 23, it's Bring Many Names, this wild array of metaphors.
to remain standing. Put down your hymnals if you want to join hands with the people next to you. If they're close enough, you can as we connect all the pieces of God that are in this community. And now in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us out from within us, be gracious unto us, and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Amen.